Welcome to the Nordonia Hills Branch Library podcast on nonfiction, a discussion of nonfiction specifically and reading generally. This month's podcast Walt Disney. The name Walt Disney has conjured up memories, stirred the imaginations of at least five generations of people, literally millions of people, over the past 90 years or so. To different people during that time, he has been an animation pioneer and innovator, the head of a major movie studio, the visionary who both created and designed both the first and the best theme park, and a man whose name is now pretty much synonymous with the entertainment industry. At the end of this month, on July 31st, we'll be taking a more in-depth look at Walt Disney and his creations, peering behind the scenes to tell some of the untold stories and the hidden facts of Disney and his legacy. Today on the podcast, we thought we'd give you a sneak preview. If you'll look into the life, the career, and the legacy of Walt Disney, you will find hundreds, if not thousands, of books out there to choose from. It is a sizable job to try and wade through all of these, or even to break these down into logical categories. How, then, do you approach Walt Disney? In my situation, for the program that's coming up at the end of this month, I approached it in somewhat of a general manner. Basically, the sum of this reading lent itself to dividing this program into four parts. The man, his team, his studio, and his parks. First, the man. Walter Elias Disney was born in Chicago in December of 1901. At a young age, Walt and his family moved to a farm in Marceline, Missouri. Both Walt and his brother Roy, as well as two other brothers and a sister, grew up there. Because of this living on a farm, Walt always considered himself a country boy. No matter how far he would come later in life, and he became a very, very wealthy man, at heart, Walt always considered himself just another regular country kid. Later on in life, when Walt was a grown man, both he and his older brother Roy who was the business side of the Disney partnership, both visited Marceline, Missouri, on a trip back home to see the family farm. As they were out in the fields, with the usual retinue of local town officials and other folks tagging along just to rubberneck or to visit with them, they came upon a barbed wire fence. Both Walt and Roy, dressed in suit and tie no less, managed to climb through the barbed wire fence with nary a scratch. At that point, the local folks from Marceline realized that Roy and Walt were indeed country folks for being able to navigate the barbed wire fence without incident. Usually a city person could not have done the same. Another event that took place while the Disneys were growing up in Marceline included Roy and Walt again on a wagon being pulled by a team of horses. At some point, the horses got spooked and took off. Roy, who was the driver, being the older boy, at 16, had a runaway on his hands. 
He tried to rein the horses in, but they flew through town and out of town, out to where the road was a little bit more windy. Realizing the horses were not slowing down any time soon, Roy instructed his younger brother Walt, who was probably around seven or eight, to jump so he would be safe. Walt refused, saying he was sticking with his older brother. Roy was able to rein in the horses eventually, turned them around, and headed them back to home. In later years, Roy would tell that story, commenting about how the whole Disney Enterprise could have ended on that fateful day if Roy had managed to pile them both up into a tree or into a ditch. The only school Walt Disney ever graduated from was grammar school, following his 7th grade year at age 15. Later on in life, Walt would receive honorary degrees from Harvard, Yale, and USC without even having a high school diploma. He, however, later received six honorary high school diplomas as well. He worked for a year as a news and candy butcher. That's basically a vendor on the train between Kansas City and Chicago on the Santa Fe Railroad. Walt was an ambulance driver for the Red Cross in France during and after World War I. Just as Walt had many ambitions and many visions and dreams of things to do, things to create, he also had a number of hobbies, two of which were miniatures and trains. Walt loved to collect miniatures of things, miniature pianos, miniature furniture, miniature printing presses, and so on and so forth. At one point, his collection numbered over 1,000 items, all handcrafted to scale, many of them working models, working steam engine, and so on. His love of trains was also legendary. No theme park of Disney's ever opened without a train. There are numerous publicity shots of him driving the train, and it wasn't just for show. He actually did know how to drive the train at the Disneyland park. In addition to that, when Walt and his wife Lillian bought their new house, a deluxe spread in Holmby Hills, California, by the way, just around the corner from the Playboy Mansion, one of the selling points was the fact that there was a large enough piece of ground for Walt to put up a garden railroad. One of those ones that have the cars that you can actually sit on, so it's not full size, but it's larger than the one that you're going to find down in your rec room or your basement. And Walt proceeded to design and lay out his track around the perimeter of the property, including the front yard, at which point Lillian put her foot down because she had always envisioned the front yard to be a place for her flower bed. Lillian was an avid gardener. Walt was never one to be stymied by what some might consider to be an unsolvable problem, so he went back to the drawing board and came up with a 90-foot tunnel, which he built under the front yard, under Lillian's precious flower garden. Walt got to complete the circuit on his train layout. Lillian got her flowers. The Disney brothers grew up and eventually made their way out to California, where they opened up an animation studio called the Disney Brothers Studio. It changed its name to Walt Disney Studio in 1928. Throughout the years, Disney came up with innovation after innovation. Innovations in color, innovations in sound. With Snow White, he became the first person to create a full-length animated movie. As groundbreaking as Snow White was, Walt, ever the perfectionist, was not satisfied with the movie. In later years, he was quoted as saying, I've seen so much of Snow White, I'm only conscious of where it can be improved. I wish I could yank it back and do it again. Even an acknowledged masterpiece of Walt's own creation was not spared 
this enthusiastic zeal that was in Disney to improve, to make better, to place it above what had come before. And it should be noted that Snow White went on to win an Oscar. The Disney Studios went through their ups and downs through the 30s and the 40s, but by the end of the 40s, they were kind of tapped out. During World War II, over 90% of the Disney Studio projects were war-related. Training films, making decals for military vehicles, educational films for the government, etc. As 1950 rolled around, Disney Studio had taken on the making of Cinderella. When it was finally released, Disney told his inside circle at the studio, if Cinderella doesn't make it, meaning success, we're through. Luckily for Disney and the movie-loving public, Cinderella was a huge success. Throughout the decades at the Disney Studios, one of the greatest achievements of Walt Disney was his ability to spot, recruit, and employ talented people. The laundry list of names that Walt Disney managed to bring out and to employ in creative or artistic endeavors is unbelievably staggering. There were the Nine Old Men, the nickname that Disney gave the nine animators that worked with him throughout most of the 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond on all the legendary Disney movies. There was Herb Ryman, a guy who worked at the art department for MGM during the 30s and also worked personally for John Ringling North, the head of the Ringling Brothers Circus, as his official artist. He finally wound up at Disney in 1938. He made huge contributions to Disney both in the movie end of things as well as later on in the creation of Disneyland. Blaine Gibson was a sculptor that Disney spotted and hired. One of the places you might find Gibson's work these days is in the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. Peter Ellenshaw was an English artist who Disney hired. He wound up working in special effects and painting for Disney for decades, winning awards for his artistic achievement. Harper Goff was an illustrator for the National Geographic. Then he worked out in Hollywood as a set designer, including on the film Casablanca. He was one of the few people that Walt trusted enough to send out into the country to scout out other amusement parks and attractions in advance of the design and creation of Disneyland. Wathel Rogers was an animator for the Disney Studios in the 1940s and 50s before Walt saw his talent as a model maker. So he wound up making models for both the movies as well as the parks. His claim to fame is that he is the one who pioneered the audio-animatronic figures that are populating Disney parks, the Hall of Presidents, the Haunted Mansion, etc. You also may have seen his work in the movie 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. He designed the Nautilus. In addition to the animators and artists that work for Disney, there is the unbelievable stable of talent in the acting side of it as well. First, the voice actors who worked on the animation side, and then later, when Disney got into live-action movies, the other actors that took their place in front of the camera. Of course, the big three of the Disney voice artists, Jimmy McDonald, the voice of Mickey Mouse, after Walt gave up the job, Clarence Nash, the voice of Donald Duck, and Pinto Colvig, the voice of Goofy, among others. Mel Blanc, the legendary Warner Brothers voice talent, the man of a thousand voices, who also worked in so many other areas, he's worthy of a podcast just on his own, worked for Disney actually on one movie, Pinocchio. If you come to the program, you'll find out how that work turned out. And Disney employed musicians. The most notable, the ones synonymous with Disney, of course, would be the Sherman Brothers, Richard and Robert. 
but also Carl Stalling, who went on to be the musical director at Warner Brothers for their animation. And ex Atencio. He started as an animator, but switched to writing and composing music because Walt told him he would be good at it. Turns out, in addition to working on the movies, he also wrote the music for The Haunted Mansion, including the song Grim Grinning Ghosts, and also for Pirates of the Caribbean, writing the song Yo-Ho, A Pirate's Life for Me. Disney's vision eventually turned to the design and creation of a theme park. In the 1940s, theme parks were not necessarily places of bright, cheery fun for the whole family. Your average theme park was generally either a traveling carnival or county fair, or something that was a small operation, somewhat tawdry, somewhat run-down, and, in Walt's opinion, somewhat dingy. Walt wanted to create a family-friendly place where people of all ages, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, and the kids, of course, could all find something to occupy their time, to relax, to get away from the hustle and bustle of everyday life. And he came up with Disneyland. Just about anybody who was anybody in the amusement park business in the early 1950s looked down their nose at Disney's plans and either told him or whispered behind his back that there was no way that Disneyland was going to be successful. It would be a failure in the first six months. It would be a failure within a year. Disney's going to lose his shirt and his studio. You watch. Instead, Disney redefined the theme park industry, and these same muckety-mucks found themselves scrambling to keep up with Disney's new model of entertainment and family fun. But for all that eventual success, opening day at Disney, indeed the first year, was no picnic. There are many stories of the hectic, frantic pace in the lead-up to the opening day, and then the opening day itself, where the anticipated crowd of 11,000 eventually turned out to be over 28,000, overwhelming the park, its staff, and its rides. One out of every two rides at Disneyland broke down on opening day due to the crowd size. The Autotopia ride, which is where you can drive miniature cars around a track, had 40 cars at the beginning of the day that were operational. At the end of opening day, two were in operating order. The other 38 were broken. If you come to the program, we'll tell you about the plumber strike, which ended just one week before opening day, and the decision that Walt had to make about which plumbing fixtures he wanted the plumbers to install. And that is just a brief example of the difficulties that Disney and his crew faced upon the opening day of Disneyland. But throughout it all, Walt kept positive, he kept persevering, and he kept looking ahead, always looking to make the next day's experience at the park better than the previous days. And he succeeded. As Disneyland, the first park in California, took off, it became a preferred choice for employment for teens and college-age kids in Southern California. And, as is the tendency for younger employees at a job for any length of time, after a while, as the job becomes second nature to you, the youthful employee will find new and creative ways to spend his time while on the job. And the stories are numerous, and in many different books, on some of the hijinks and shenanigans that the Disneyland and Disney World staffs got up to. For fun, on some days, the Disneyland staff would direct all the cars of a certain color into one single lot. So at the end of the day, those people looking for the white car or the green car had a whole lot to choose from. Or the ride operator on the It's a Small World ride. The ride was one, if you'd never experienced it, where you float through the exhibits on real water in a boat while the It's a Small World theme plays. 
When a set of teenagers came out of the ride, they begged the ride operator to send them through again because they liked the ride so much. So the ride operator complied, sending them through again and again until finally they were coming out begging to be let off because they couldn't take that song anymore. In addition to the books describing the behind-the-scenes antics of the employees, there are dozens if not hundreds of books going into the design of the parks, buildings, and structures, and rides, and all the people who worked diligently, creatively, in designing and building them. The head of construction for Disneyland was a former admiral in the United States Navy who actually designed two aircraft carriers, the Lexington and the Saratoga. In addition to those people that I've already described earlier in the podcast, Walt himself took a hand in designing Tom Sawyer Island at Disneyland. It is the one part of the park that he personally designed himself. Being from Missouri, he took a keen and personal interest in that particular part of the park. In the end, Disneyland and its successor, Disney World in Florida, have been huge successes, destinations for thousands of families every year from around the world. They continue to grow and expand, improve and get better, just as Walt envisioned them all those years ago. Disneyland was so popular that it encouraged many people to try and sneak into the park through some other entranceway and not pay for admission through the main gate. Disneyland security estimates that in the entire perimeter fence of the park, there is not one single stretch of fence that is longer than 100 feet that's original fencing, due to so many people trying to cut the fence or bend the fence or dig under the fence to get into the park. By the mid-1960s, Disney had so many of his plans come to fruition. The animation, the live-action movies, the theme parks. But Walt was not sitting still. He was planning his next park and something he called Epcot, the experimental prototypical community of tomorrow. Walt, however, would not live to see those dreams realized. He passed away in 1966. His brother Roy continued on becoming the driving force behind the creation and design of Disney World. The park opened in 1971, the same year that Roy passed away. Walt's and Roy's plans and visions were picked up by those at the studios who had worked alongside both of them, and they were carried forward throughout the 70s and into the 80s. They operated under the mantra, What Would Walt Do?, and tried to guide the company onward. Eventually, however, it became evident that no one could replace Walt Disney. As much as Walt had a keen eye for talent, he himself was a uniquely talented individual. A special combination of initiative, vision, and drive that got things done exactly the way he wanted it. This unique demand for quality and creative vision could not be replaced easily. Eventually, the Disney company fell on hard times, and in the mid-80s, the company was taken over by a group headed by Michael Eisner. Eisner also had a unique talent and drive to get things done, and he assembled a team that brought the Disney Studios back to a success not seen since Walt was alive. The list of Disney superlatives and Disney first is too long to go into in such a short amount of time that we are limited to by the podcast. We hope you'll join us on Thursday, July 31st at 7 p.m. for an expanded look at Walt Disney and his creations, the team he worked with, the things he created, the untold stories of his studio and his legacy. This program will be accompanied by a multimedia presentation and is free to all attendees. We hope you join us. Join us again here on the podcast next month 
when we'll take another look at the books on nonfiction. Until then, we will see you at your Nordonia Hills Branch Library. Music by 20 Riverside, provided by Mevio's Music Alley. Music.mevio.com Thank you for listening.